But if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to Matthew chapter 21 this morning. This morning, we're beginning a short four-week series leading up to Easter, looking at the last week of Jesus' earthly life, earthly ministry. Um, after Easter, just to, get, to let you guys know and to solicit your prayers, uh, beginning the week after Easter, we're beginning a new book study going through the book of Revelation, yeah. only because the Lord told me so, right? <laughs> Uh, so I would appreciate your prayers. I am supremely intimidated by that book, but I'm excited for us as a church to dive into that book together. Uh, but over the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at the last week of Jesus's earthly ministry. And this morning, we're going to look at the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Uh, and then we're going to conclude on uh, Easter weekend with first our Good Friday service, uh, Good Friday at 7 o'clock, uh, beholding Jesus as he is crucified for us, and then on Easter Sunday, celebrating together his resurrection, defeating sin and death forever. Uh, so this morning, we're looking at the triumphal entry of Jesus. We're in Matthew chapter 21. We're going to look at the first 11 verses of that chapter. So follow along in your copy of the scriptures as we read God's word. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the privilege to gather together as your people and worship you and, and now turn to your word. We pray, Father, that you'd speak to us from this precious book that we hold in our hands, your very breath, your inspired word. God, we ask that you'd speak to us from it this morning, and that you would, above everything else, Lord, cause us to behold your Son, Jesus, our Redeemer. Father, we pray that over the next few weeks, as we encounter some of the stories of what occurred that last week of your Son's earthly ministry, we pray, Father, that our 
vision, our beholding of Jesus would become even clearer and more pronounced such that it causes us to live lives that are worthy of the gospel of him who died for us on that cross and was raised again for our justification. Thank you for this privilege of meeting as a church and hearing your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to cover quickly just a a setting for what happens in this part of the story. Jesus, for several months, up to a year, has been uh, traveling in and around Galilee, a city on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. That was kind of his headquarters for his earthly ministry for a good while now. It's where he uh, began in earnest his teaching and preaching ministry and where he had performed all kinds of miracles. And as a result of that, had gained quite a following. A lot of people had begun to follow Jesus as a result of his ministry. But now he was leaving Galilee. Now he was heading down to Judea in general and Jerusalem in particular. And he had promised his disciples as he was traveling to Jerusalem, he told them what was going to happen to him when he got to Jerusalem, that he'd be turned over to the authorities and that he would be crucified. But before he arrives in Jerusalem, he stops over in a town called Bethany. It's a small village about two miles down the street from the city of Jerusalem. Bethany becomes his new kind of temporary outpost for ministry. And for several weeks, up to three or four months, he travels into Jerusalem and back to Bethany and back and forth many, many times. And during this time, we see a lot of the familiar stories that we see in the gospel accounts. The story of the woman caught in adultery found in John chapter 8 occurs occurs during this time. That happens in Jerusalem, and during that time, Jesus was out at the Mount of Olives, which is between Bethany and Jerusalem. And so he comes into Jerusalem to this woman's aid whom the Pharisees were about to stone because of her sin. Lazarus, familiar because Jesus rose him from the dead, he too lived in Bethany. And when he died, Jesus had gone into Jerusalem yet again to celebrate the Feast of Dedication, which is the Jewish Hanukkah. And so he was in Jerusalem celebrating this holy day when his friend Lazarus died and word came to him and he had to be paged to come back out to Bethany. The anointing of Jesus by Mary, which took place just prior to the triumphal entry, also took place in Bethany as well. There had been a lot of comings and goings into Jerusalem. Jesus had traveled into Jerusalem and back to Bethany many times. But this time, he enters Jerusalem for the last time. The next time he leaves Jerusalem, he'll be carrying a cross on his back. This time is different. He's entering Jerusalem for good. Up to this point in the story, Jesus had been very secretive about his identity and why he came. His most favorite way of referring to himself was the Son of Man, 
referring to both his divinity and his humanity, but kind of a coded, a, a veiled way of referring to himself as the promised Messiah. But now he openly allows this crowd to treat him as a king. And, they, and he allows them to call him the son of David, a, a messianic title that was not veiled in the least, that it was filled with messianic prophecy. And why? Because this is the final week of Jesus' earthly ministry. He knew what was going to happen to him when he entered town. He had promised his disciples at least three times up to this point. He knew that he would be put to death, but he also knew that he would return again. And that time he would return as a conquering king. And so now he's being more open and more public about who he is and why he came. But as you would suspect, this is going to cause problems for Jesus. Being paraded into Jerusalem as a king, a a city that at this point is occupied by a a Roman imperial army. It's an occupied city, fortified, and he's being paraded in as the king of the Jews. This was dangerous to one's health, especially when the first thing that he does is enter a temple and drive out turn over the, 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 the tables of the money changers and drive them out, something that occurs right after the story of the triumphal entry, disrupting the livelihood of the religious leaders and causing a disruption in the city. This was dangerous. And so, as you would expect, right after the story of the triumphal entry, there is a sharp rise in the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders conflict that will continue to intensify throughout this week and will ultimately conclude with his crucifixion. But that's Good Friday. For now, we're on Monday. We're on Monday. And what we're intended to see here is Jesus. Matthew gives us this incredible picture of Jesus as the king. And and though the people don't fully understand what they're doing and what they're saying, we do. We understand. And so I think that we're meant to worship Jesus as we behold him in this passage, but not like the crowd, not like the crowd that's following him. We are primarily going to look at Jesus this morning, but before we do, I want us to take a brief look at the crowd itself that's following him. As we mentioned, this crowd has been following him since Galilee, when Jesus was teaching the scriptures like one who had authority. It was different. He taught like nobody else had. He performed miracles and healings like no one before him. And so he had gained quite a following as a result of this. And as Jesus leaves Galilee, this, this crowd begins to follow him as he makes his way to Jerusalem. And the, and the crowd begins to swell as they make their way to Jerusalem. 
And part of that crowd was the crowd that followed him from Galilee. But, but the other part of the crowd was, were these Jewish pilgrims who were making their way to Jerusalem in order to celebrate Passover. That's what they were doing. And the crowd grew even more. Jesus made a circuitous route to uh, Judea. He went around the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. So he was on the other side of the Jordan River. And, and as he approached Jericho... A city on the banks of the Jordan River, on the eastern shore. As he approached that city, there were a couple of men outside that city who were blind. One of them, as we see in Matthew's name, Bartimaeus. And this crowd didn't have time for these blind men. After all, they were on the way to Jerusalem to observe a religious observance so they didn't have time for the two blind men. And they didn't want Jesus to, have, to, to waste any time with them either. And so they rebuked the two blind men. But, but Jesus didn't listen to them. Jesus stopped and he healed them. And that by itself should give us a clue that the motivations of this crowd were not going to be perfectly aligned with Jesus' plan. So now in this passage, we see this crowd again as they begin to make their way into the city, as they begin to enter into Jerusalem. And what are they doing? They are laying their cloaks on the ground in front of Jesus. They're cutting down palm branches and laying them down in front of him as he rides on this donkey into Jerusalem. And they're shouting accolades to Jesus. And while their actions are exemplary, their motives for doing so are not. The content of their actions are, are good and worthy examples to follow. They lay their cloaks on the ground in front of Jesus for he on, a, on the back of a donkey to ride across. Now that's odd. I don't know if you've ever done that. I haven't. Why would you do that? Why would you put a perfectly good coat on the ground to be tread upon by a beast of burden, to be muddied and soiled and stained. Well, this was not just a sacrifice of their coats. It was symbolic. It was a, it was a sign of paying honor to royalty. In 2 Kings chapter 9, we're told that this, this is how the people would welcome a king back into town. As the king made his way back from from his exploits and his battles, as he came back into town, they would lay their cloaks on the ground in front of him for him to walk across. It was a sign of royalty. They were treating Jesus as a king. The same with the palm branches. It, it was a, a, a way of paying homage to rulers, kind of like when the flower girl puts flower petals on the floor so that the bride, as she walks, she doesn't have to stain her feet by walking on the dirty floor. She walks on the sweet aroma and the beautiful petals of the flower. This is a way to pay homage to someone in high position. So they were sacrificing their cloaks. They were serving him as royalty, and they were worshiping him as a king. We're told in verse 9 that they were singing a song. Actually, we're told that they were shouting this song. They, they said, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. 
That word Hosanna means, oh, save. It was a, a praise to God. It is a, a shout of exclamation to God to thank him for his saving mercies to Israel. It would be the equivalent today of saying, praise God, praise God to the son of David. That, that term, again, that title was a messianic title referring specifically in the Old Testament to the anointed one, the one who would sit on the throne of King David forever, the one who was promised in the, in the proto-euangelion in Genesis chapter 3, the one who would come and crush the head of the serpent, defeating sin and death forever. That's what that title meant. This is a king. It was the term used by the blind men in Jericho that, that Jesus healed. They said, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And they were exalting Jesus as the Messiah. They were exalting him as the promised king of the Jews. This is why in, gospels, in Luke's gospel account of this story, the, the Pharisees, when they heard the crowd using this title to refer to Jesus, the son of David, they, they told the, Jesus to silence them, and they told the crowd, they rebuked the crowd for using this term, and told Jesus to silence them when they said this. And what did Jesus say? Listen, if they are silent, then these very rocks will cry out. In other words, I'm going to be praised as the king by someone, it might as well be them. And so note that Jesus doesn't stop them. He doesn't stop them from calling him the son of David. He doesn't stop them from putting down their cloaks. He doesn't stop them from cutting palm branches off and laying them down in front of him. Why? Because he is worthy of this. He deserves this. He's worthy of their praise. He is the king, and the king is coming. So even though the crowd didn't fully understand who Jesus was, I don't think, they call him a prophet when the, when the whole city is stirred when he gets into Jerusalem. He's the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. They didn't fully understand who Jesus was or why he was coming. And so the content of their actions, though, is exemplary. They're sacrificing for him, they're serving him, and they are worshiping him as king. I wonder... How are you figuratively laying down your cloak for Jesus? Cutting off palm branches and laying them down in front of him and shouting accolades, Hosanna to the son of David. What sacrifice are you offering to King Jesus? Not to pay him back. We could never pay him back for the grace that he has offered us through his cross work. But simply to honor him as king to pay homage to him as our Lord. How are you serving him? How are you worshiping him as king? Not just with your lips on Sunday morning, but with your lives throughout the week. How are you serving him as king? So their actions are exemplary, but the motivations for their actions are not. Why are they doing this? Who do they think Jesus really is? And, and probably more importantly, what do they expect of this Jesus? Well, they thought he was a king. 
And he wanted, they wanted him to be their king and their king now. But they misunderstood his kingdom. That it was not of this world. At least, not yet. They wanted Jesus to assume the throne of David, but he, they wanted him to do that now. Because Israel needed rescue now. Jerusalem was an occupied city. It was occupied by a foreign pagan army. And they needed rescue from this army. They were waiting for what Simeon, who was in the temple when, when Joseph and Mary brought the little Jesus to be dedicated, what he called the consolation of Israel, the, the comforting of Israel. That's what they were waiting for. What they were waiting for was a revolution. What they wanted was an overthrow of this government, an ousting of this Roman army, and a restoration of Israel to her former glory. So this is what they wanted of Jesus. This is what they expected of him when he came into Jerusalem. And you know, as long as it looked like that's where he was headed, as long as it looked like that's what he was going to deliver, well, they were ready to sacrifice for him and serve him and worship him as a king. But as soon as it became clear to this crowd that he was not going to overthrow Rome, not yet at least, not according to their timetable, they dropped him like a bad habit. As long as Jesus met their expectations and did what they expected him to do, they were for him and behind him 100%. But as soon as they realized that Jesus was not going to be the kind of God, little, little G, that they expected him to be, that they wanted him to be, their shouts of acclamation became shouts of animosity. Instead of yelling, Hosanna, they yelled, crucify him. So what do we learn as we behold this crowd? Well, we learn that Jesus is worthy of our sacrifice. He's worthy of us serving him and worshiping him simply because of who he is. Not because he meets our expectations or does anything for us. He deserves it because of who he is. I think it's possible for us, church, to create expectations of Jesus that he should not meet and that he will not meet. Often we bemoan the, those who proclaim the prosperity gospel, that they create an expectation in their followers that Jesus is going to meet your every need whether it's a financial need or a physical need or whatever, that Jesus is going to meet all your needs, and those are false expectations of Jesus. He never promised to, he will not, and he should not meet those expectations. But if that's what we expect of him, and he doesn't meet those expectations, then we will, like the crowd, abandon him. More often in the church today, the church in America today, we sometimes create a savior of our own making that doesn't look at all like the Jesus in the Bible. Sometimes it's a picture of Jesus as our moral example. Sometimes it's a picture of Jesus as our therapeutic counselor. 
what would Jesus do is not a bad question. But if that's all we expect of Jesus, then all he'll ever be to us is a moral example. Just an example of good morals, not a savior. You've probably heard, Jesus helps me to be the best possible version of myself. Or that Jesus is here to to help me feel better about myself and help me improve my life. And then as long as I follow him, he'll cause everything to work out just so. As if following Jesus is some kind of uh, pill that we can take that prevents suffering. And these are false expectations of Jesus. Jesus didn't come to do any of those things. He came to seek and to save the lost. He didn't come primarily to perform miracles. He did that to prove first that, that he could that he had power over sickness and disease, that he had the power of creation to to create skin where once there was just leprosy. He, He did that because his heart broke for those who were hurting. That's not why he primarily came. He didn't come primarily to to perform miracles and healings. He didn't come primarily to to stop suffering. We learned a lot about suffering when we went through the life of Joseph recently in the book of Genesis. Genesis. And one of the things that we learned is that God is sovereign even over suffering, and he never promises us a life without it. So these are false expectations of Jesus. And when, not if, but when Jesus does not meet those expectations, then we'll either be like this crowd and we will abandon him, or we will fall into depression and we will think that he has abandoned us. Neither of which are true. It's just that our expectations have been way off. And worse yet, we've made our worship of him contingent on him meeting those expectations. And again, Jesus is worthy of our sacrifice and our service and our worship. Not because of anything he does for us. Not because he's met our expectations, but simply because of who he is. He is the king, and the king is coming. So let's move on from observing the crowd to now observing the king. Because I think more than anything else in this passage, we are meant to behold Jesus. So let's look at him. And as we look at him in this story riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, we get three pictures. The first is a picture of humility. We see a picture of humility as he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. Now, let's let's be honest. That's not what we would expect of a king, right? We would expect a king to be riding into the city, especially his city, on a chariot, right? A, A grand chariot. With gold inlay, the most beautiful, impressive chariot we could possibly think of. I mean, even the Ethiopian VIP that Philip meets with in Acts chapter 8, even he gets a chariot. And this is the king of the universe. If anyone ever deserved a chariot, it's him. But that's not Jesus' style. His MO was self-sacrifice and humility. As we, as we look at the gospel narrative, we see that this is a point that Jesus has been driving home to his disciples all along the way up to this point. 
that following Jesus is the way of humility. And pride has no place in the heart and life of a believer and follower of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 18, as the children are climbing into his lap and his disciples are trying to shoo them away, what does Jesus say? He says, if you want to be great in the kingdom, humble yourself like these little children. At the end of that same chapter, he tells the parable of the unmerciful servant. That we should have the humility to extend mercy to those who owe us a debt. Why? Because we've been forgiven an unpayable debt through Christ. But the unmerciful servant couldn't do that because his heart was filled with pride. In the very next chapter, chapter 19, Jesus, we, we, we're told the story of Jesus and the, uh, the conversation that he has with the rich young ruler. And afterwards, Jesus tells his disciples that it is with great difficulty that a rich person will enter heaven. Riches make you important in the world's eyes, but not in God's eyes. God is looking for those who are humble. He was teaching his disciples about humility. In the previous chapter, chapter 20, Jesus tells the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. You remember the story how, how the folks who come to work in the vineyard later in the day get the exact same pay as the people who have worked all day. And the people who have worked all day, they're upset about that. That's unfair. How could that happen? Why is that true? And Jesus gave that teaching as a, as a way of emphasizing the teaching that he gave earlier that the last shall be first and the first shall be last. He was teaching them about humility. We have the story in Matthew 20 about James and John and their, and their mother and their vying for positions of prominence when Jesus comes into his kingdom. And Jesus rebukes the mother and says, you don't know what you're asking for. He says, that's how the Gentiles rule, but not so with you. With you, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. All along, Jesus has been teaching that the way of following him is the way of humility. And now he gives a picture of that with his very life. He's not riding on a noble chariot. He's riding a humble beast of burden, a working man's donkey. The way of following Jesus is the way of humility. It's not a way that is highly esteemed by our culture, but it is the way of following Jesus. And so if you're wanting to follow Jesus, like genuinely follow after Christ, then friend, expect your pride to be assaulted at every turn. Because the, the pride of our flesh is diametrically opposed to the way of the cross. Diametrically opposed. And because this is the way of following Jesus, he gives us not just a picture of humility, but we know that through Christ we have the hope of humility. You see, the good, the good news is not just that we have an example to follow in Jesus. I mean, that's great that we can look at Jesus and we see an example of humility. But more than that, the gospel is good news because it is our very hope in our fight against pride 
and our fight for humility. Because Jesus defeated sin and death, those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ will not be judged for our lack of humility, praise God, but also we have the hope for the kind of humility that we see in Jesus, that we see in this picture, because remember, we're, we're works in progress, and he is, he's sanctifying us, and through the power of the gospel, he is, he's going to finish that work, and he's going to complete it the day of Christ. He's going to conform us to the image of Jesus, which is the image of humility. And so we see in Jesus first a, a picture of humility, but secondly, we see him as he's riding into Jerusalem. We see in him a promise of peace. This is a promise of peace as Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. Again, if we were to write this story, we wouldn't, we wouldn't put the king on a donkey. We, we, would, we would either put the king on a, a huge, ornate chariot, or we'd put the king on a war horse, right? That's what we would expect of a king, a conquering king. He'd be on a, 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 a war horse, after all, that's the setting here, right? Israel's under enemy occupation. The enemy has taken up fortification in the city and around the city. And if that king is going to take the city back, which is what the crowd expects him to do, then we would expect him to be riding in on a war horse, like, like General Patton on the back of a tank riding into Paris, right? That's what we expect. But he's not. He's riding on a donkey. In Scripture, a king riding in on his chariot or riding on a war horse it is a symbol of, of wartime and, and battle, but a king riding on a donkey meant peace. The crowd wanted the king on a war horse, ready for battle, ready to do battle against this pagan Roman army. But Jesus was coming, as prophesied, to bring peace. Remember what the angel told the shepherds who were keeping watch over their flock by night on the night in which Jesus was, was born. He said, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. He came to bring peace. And so he rode on a donkey and he did this on purpose. Jesus did this on purpose. He sent the two disciples, as we're told, into the city. And that, and, and that Matthew tells us that that was fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. That's a quote from the, the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 says this, Rejoice greatly, o, o daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is the prophet Zechariah prophesying of the, the coming of the Old Testament Messiah, the king of Israel. And that he would come in peace. He would come to bring peace. That he was coming on a donkey meant peace. But then it's interesting to note, look at the very next verse in Zechariah chapter 9. Look at verse 10. He says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. It's another word for Israel. And the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So verse 9 says that he will come in peace. And verse 10 speaks of his coming again, a second coming, the second coming of Christ. 
whereby the peace that the Messiah will bring at that point will come by overthrowing all competing rulers, and Jesus will rule over all. The point here is that Jesus' coming was bringing peace. And though that kind of political, physical peace was yet to come and would one day happen, as we'll see in the book of Revelation, when Jesus comes to rule in the new heaven and the new earth, at this point in the story, at this point in the narrative, Jesus was purchasing a much more important peace, a peace that would come at a much higher cost. And that is our spiritual peace with God the Father that would come only because of his shed blood on the cross. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes how Jesus brought us peace with God from Colossians 1, verses 19 through 22. He says, For in him, that is in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, that is through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's what he came to do. So do you see him sitting on that donkey? Do you see him riding into Jerusalem? Being worshipped and served and receiving the accolades as a king? As he travels on the back of a donkey? He's also subtly, subtly telling us something. That he's coming to bring us peace. Peace between us and God. And from Jesus being... If it were not Jesus entering Jerusalem at this point and being arrested and being unrighteously tried and being unrighteously found guilty of blasphemy and being beaten and flogged and nailed to a cross and then rising three days later, if it were not for that, we would still be enemies of God with no hope of peace with him. And so as we watch Jesus entering into Jerusalem, seated on this donkey with his crowd serving him and worshiping him as king, we're seeing a picture of humility. And we're seeing a promise of our peace with God. But we're also, thirdly, we're seeing a prophecy of his passion. Jesus heading into Jerusalem on a donkey is a foreshadowing of the cross. After all, Jesus himself, as recently as the previous chapter, promised his disciples that when he got into Jerusalem, he would be turned over to the scribes and Pharisees and that they would commit him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles who would mock him and flog him and crucify him. He was riding in a king, but the king would be put to death. And he knew this. He knew that he had to be put to death in order to rescue those who were in rebellion against him. But on he rode. What amazing grace this is. 
The only way that we could have peace with God is not through our own efforts to try to clean things up, not through our own attempts to try to make ourselves a better person. Our only hope for peace with with God is through the shed blood of his son, Jesus Christ. As Colossians 1 told us just now, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He was riding into Jerusalem and he knew exactly what was going to happen to him. He was riding to the cross. He wanted his God to be glorified that much. He loved you and I that much. He wasn't riding for the accolades of the crowd and the shouts of their praise, but for the worship of God among the nations. He knew that was the only way for people like you and I who were far from him the only way for us, for us to worship our creator in spirit and truth, to be reconciled to him so that we could worship him as we were created to do, was for him to be our substitutionary sacrifice on the cross of Calvary. And so on he rode. And I believe that this passage is here for us to simply observe him, and see him and behold him and worship him. So what is our application to a passage of Scripture like this? I'm going to offer four applications to you. First of all, have you perhaps invented a Savior of your own making that really doesn't resemble the Jesus that we find in Scripture? Maybe it's one that will make everything work out just so for you. One that will never let you suffer. Or one that will never let you experience loss or rejection or you fill in the blank. If you've invented a savior of your own making, then maybe your application this morning is simply to repent of that. And to fall in love with this Jesus that we see here. This humble, humble, donkey riding king. Secondly, as, as we look at ourselves against the backdrop of this humble donkey-riding king, man, our, our pride is seen so much more easily, isn't it? As we see his humility, perhaps this morning it's an opportunity for you to confess that pride and repent of that pride and Reacquaint yourself again with the way of following Jesus. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. Put a towel over your arm and serve like Jesus did with humility. Thirdly, we should rest in the good news that if we've come to faith in Jesus Christ as our only hope, we have peace with God. And Paul tells us before we come to faith in Christ, before he gives us new life, we are his enemies. We are his enemies. But through Christ crucified and risen, those who have put their faith in Christ alone for rescue have peace with God. Enemies of God have peace with him now. 
You don't have to work for that peace anymore. You simply can rest in the peace that has been provided. Rest in that peace. But friend, if you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then you don't have peace with God. The scriptures testify to you, whether you accept it or not, that you're still an enemy of his. And that you have no reason to have confidence in his presence. Only fear. Because you have no peace with the God of the universe. And friend, that is a precarious position to find yourself in. But perhaps you're here this morning within earshot of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the the good news of Jesus Christ, because he is drawing you to himself. And he is placing that faith in you to trust in Jesus as your only hope. My exhortation to you, if you find yourself in that place, that you don't have peace with God, is to trust in Jesus' finished work on the cross as your only hope. Look to Jesus. Not your own efforts, not your own works, not how many times you've been to church, not how many times you've been baptized, but in Christ's finished work on the cross and his resurrection three days later as your only hope. Then and only then will you have peace with God. But finally and most importantly, I think we're meant to worship him as we see him here. This is a picture of a king who's worthy of our worship, who's deserving of our allegiance. And we were made for this. We, we were made to worship him. We messed that up with our own sin, stained with our, our, our sin and our flesh. We can't worship him as we were created to do. That's why God sent Jesus, to re- reconcile us back to him and to recreate us as worshipers so that we can worship him in spirit and truth. So church, in light of this picture that we see here, let us worship him. Not just with our lips on Sunday morning, but with our lives throughout the week. Let us lay down our cloaks and sacrifice for him. Let us cut off palm branches and lay them down in front of him, for he is deserving of our service. And let us shout acclamations to him, not just with our lips, but with our very lives. Let us lay down our goals, our aspirations, our dreams. Let us put them at the foot of the cross. Let us put a blank check in front of him and say, Jesus, you deserve Deserve it all and worship him as the king because the king is coming. He's coming again. Let's praise him.